The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. As the war in Ukraine continues to roll financial markets and companies, tune in as our columnists discuss the ructions in the nickel market and the dilemmas facing French companies in Russia. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London stock exchange business. Welcome back to The Views Room. I'm Peter Thalarsen, coming to you once again from London's Canary Wharf. The war in Ukraine is continuing to roar financial markets and upend corporate strategies around the world. This week, we're zooming in on two very interesting situations. The upheaval in the trading of nickel, a key component for electric vehicle batteries, and the decisions French oil giant Total and carmaker Renault will have to make about their investments in Russia. First, I talked to Breaking Views columnist George Hay in London and Yawen Chen in Hong Kong about nickel. It's just over a week since the London Metal Exchange suspended trading in the metal after its price doubled from $50,000 a ton to $100,000 a ton in one morning. We explore how a large Chinese producer got on the wrong end of a short squeeze, why the LME did what it did, and what happens next. Then I talked to Pierre Briançon about French companies in Russia. Many Western firms have rushed to sell or suspend their operations in the country since the invasion of Ukraine, but some are so far staying put. Pierre explains why Total's continued presence in Russia is an embarrassment for French President Emmanuel Macron and why Renault is risking damaging its brand outside Russia. Good morning and good evening, George Hay and Yohan Chen. Welcome back to the Views Room. Hi there. Hi, Peter. So uh, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, mid-morning. Trading in nickel on the London Metal Exchange reopened at 8 o'clock this morning after uh, more than a week of being halted and then immediately stopped again because the price hit the limits and uh, now there are some, there are some other wrinkles. George, for those of us that, that haven't been following this as closely as you have, tell us a little bit about how we got here and what's been going on. Right. So if you'd started, uh, if, we'd, if we'd been having this conversation just before eight o'clock and just before the markets opened today or reopened, the, the, the overall picture for LME would be pretty bad anyway. Well, really bad anyway. Um, basically, the London Metal Exchange, beginning of last Tuesday's trading, <laughs> they, they basically just shut the market. So this is... Um, like a week ago, over a week ago, they shut the market because prices in nickel had gone from, I mean, pretty much the all-time high of about $50,000 a ton had not only been reached, they zoomed up to double that. So, and that was because there was this highly unusual short squeeze, this big Chinese nickel miner, uh, Chan. So basically, the market participants, they could see that this, these incredible price spikes were happening and some of them were in real difficulty, not just Ching Chan. And so the LME decided to, to kind of just shut the market. Now, that, that, that caused a massive stink amongst uh, the financial participants, like the hedge funds who, who play in this market, because they were like, you know, this, the market is the market and you can't just, just retroactively, uh, you know, it's one thing, it's one thing to kind of just shut it but it's quite another thing to do what they also did which is just void all the trades that happened last tuesday and so ever since then lme has been in a bit of a kerfuffle because they've tried, been trying to work out how to reopen the market without the price 
zooming up again and exacerbating this uh, the, the the problem they had last Tuesday. And so the, what they what they eventually um, alighted on was to say, okay, well um, we'll allow the market to reopen and we will, uh, but we'll only allow trades to be to be to be made five uh, percent um, above the closing price on uh, last Monday or five percent below and uh, so so that's a that that was an annoying enough for players in this market anyway and what's actually happened since eight o'clock this morning is that the price fell to the five percent limit but the, <laughs> unfortunately for the LME their computer allowed some trades to be done below that five percent limit which is exactly what they didn't want to happen and so they've en- ended up having to shutter the market again and they're probably going to have to cancel trades again and as you can imagine people are now even more angry than they were before yeah i've seen i've seen a lot of uh, i've seen a lot of people joking on twitter and elsewhere about which market was going to open first the moscow stock exchange or the uh, the london metals exchange and yeah, i guess they- you don't want those kind. If you're if you're Matthew Chamberlain running the LME, those are not kind of the kind of gags you really want to be looking at. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But so, I mean, I could just to take a step back a bit. I mean, you know, I, I guess I'm curious why this particular metal has kind of found itself in this in this kind of crazy kind of situation. This this short squeeze where the price is doubling from an all time high is already doubling again in the morning. So Yawen, you're in Hong Kong. You, you've been following this sort of from the, the Chinese end and particularly looking a bit at this big company, Xingqian, which is, seems to be at the heart of all of this. Explain a little bit about how they got themselves in this situation. Sure. So this company is really interesting. It, it has been a very mysterious private company that is quietly, you know, purchasing mines, taking control of a lot of industrial parks in Indonesia. So it has a lot of physical uh, nickel business, which gives them this natural option of um, hedge that prices for for the physical trade by having a short position on the London Metal Exchange. But I think last year when they had this technical breakthrough, when they announced that they could dramatically increase the output of a nickel equivalent called, uh, sorry, a nickel, a nickel intermediate product called nickel mat that will that will be used in electric vehicle batteries when you purify them. So I think the executive Xiang Guangdao was really confident that because of this breakthrough, they will be able to um, pressure the entire market down. So this this company has this confidence partly because they are so dominant in both the nickel market in stainless steel, which is uh, a major product for for the usage of nickel. And then now we have the the whole EV boom helping driving up demand. Okay, so so basically, so they're a big producer. And and, I mean, we've all sort of learned a bit about this over the the past week, but it seems like so these big producers, they go short on the exchange, it basically is a way of hedging their their production and then they can then lock in sort of prices that they're that they're then going to deliver this this physical because they know they're going to deliver this physical nickel so that they can be they can then close the short by delivering the the physical nickel um, but it, but but, but it, sorry correct so me if I'm wrong a, here yeah so it's actually not a perfect hedge right they they use this way for financial hedging so because when the prices goes down for their physical nickel they could make financial gains from those futures contracts. But when prices goes up, 
the problem is that, you know, especially when it happens in like such a short period of time, for one, they're not one of the designated, I think they I think the London Metal Exchange have warehouses that are de designated to be um, able to deliver the nickel that's needed, which is class one pure nickel that Qingshan actually doesn't produce. So when they're in a short squeeze like this, they cannot, for one, find the cash to cover their position um, and cover the margin costs. And secondly, they won't be able to, as alternative, to give them the, the physical nickel that's required by um, by the delivery obligation. Yeah, and exactly um, that, 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 to that point um, that uh, Yawan is pointing out, I mean, that's, that's kind of largely explains why the squeeze last month, uh, last week was so, you know, so extreme because they were in this position where you you would kind of think well they're a massive producer they could just you know they've got they should have a lot of this you know nickel that they can supply to help with these contracts but actually as Yohan says they're not it's not necessarily the right sort that is accepted by the LME which so that kind of was one of the reasons that the whole thing problem was exacerbated. As we know from financial markets if you're a long an asset the worst thing that can happen to you is that the price goes to zero and you lose your initial investment. But if you're short an asset, the mm -hmm. price can keep going up and your losses can rise and rise and rise. And and that seems to be where we are now. How did Qingshan, sort of, how did they get out of this situation? Or at least how did they sort of stabilize the situation, Yohan? It seems like because they have kind of phrased this story as it's, a, it's an attack coming from Wall Street, because don't forget this, this happened in the whole Russia invasion scenario, right? Where you suddenly see commodity, commodity prices rising across the board and Russia is a key energy and commodities exporter. They actually is the largest exporter for nickel, taking like 14% of the market. And their nickel is also of the pure grade that could be used for physical okay. delivery on the LME. So I think one calculus by Qingshan was that even if they are forced to deliver, they could always source from Russia. But just because the West has kind of sanctioned the country and taken some of the Russian banks and companies out of uh, the international financial system, so it just suddenly becomes inaccessible. So, so if Qingzhan was was able to basically paint at least with the state media at home that look, this is an attack from the West, and we just have to, you know, this is a very important metal for EV, and China is going through a green transition. And I think they put out statements through state media saying like, I mean, not a statement, like a reply to state media indirectly saying we've got support from the officials in Beijing. And some of their banks are China's largest commercial bank, like China Construction Bank. So they had some emergency meetings too. So eventually, even though it's a private company that I think Beijing has been trying to distance themselves to, you know, trying not to save zombie firms, even, you know, the yeah. SOEs, they have uh, won the support. There there are multiple outlets, including Reuters, reporting how Beijing was considering, like, even drawing from the state reserves to help them with the nickel delivery. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, also guiding domestic banks to to not cut loans to them to to provide more yeah. credit loans. To I mean, they've, they've got a lot of help. Basically, the basic thing is if you're in a massive short squeeze, usually you are completely you know <laughs> you know you're completely you know, rinsed there's nothing not much you can do but if you have the Chinese government saying that they might help you out that um does help you out <laughs> well and they, they but they've got a lot of help right I mean so so as Yawan said so there's this, this suggestion that the Chinese government might 
use some of its nickel reserves to, to, to help cover these short positions. The banks seem to have been encouraged to, you know, kind of hold off on sort of margin calls or kind of finance the, the, the position for longer. And then obviously you also got help from the from the London Metal Exchange, which which decided to basically hold the market to stop yeah. the price from going up and, and stop people from getting in trouble. So so that's all, you know, so so, so and, and obviously the subtext, I think, as you wrote the other day, George, in your piece was that it wasn't just Jing Chan was in trouble. Had the price been allowed to keep going up, there's also a couple of brokers in in uh, in London on the LME that would also probably have to close yeah. their and doors. I think that, and that's, an, that's important detail because, I mean, obviously some people look at it and say, OK, this LME is owned by the Hong Kong exchanges and clearing and hey, what's going on there? But I mean, there, there are other things on the LME chief executive Matthew Chamberlain's mind because it's like literally a lot of his members who are, um, who are you know, they are integral to the LME's um, smooth working. They, they, yeah. they got into real difficulties too, or they would have. Okay. But okay, but you said smooth working, but I mean, there's 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 smooth working, and then there's not working at all, which is where we seem like to be that. at the moment. I mean, I guess so. Maybe just to sort of think about what kind of happens next, George. I mean, you say people are unhappy. Obviously, the sort of the financial investors whose trades were cancelled, they're yeah. unhappy, quite publicly unhappy. Some of the pot, the participants in the market also seem to be pretty unhappy about this idea of of prices only nickel prices only being able to go up five or down five percent a a day. Yeah. But but if you're, I mean, it's one thing to be unhappy. What's the alternative? Well, that's the thing that basically they've already spoken to some players in the market who are just like, if this, if this market is not going to work, and what they're saying is, if you can, if the market can only go up, the price can only go up or down five percent every day, then for your for their purposes, it doesn't really work. They're saying like fifteen percent up or down might be, uh, they'd probably kind of go along with that and. You know, effectively, one thing the LME could do is just um, extend extend this kind of um, range to 15%. And then that would probably probably be enough to stop people kind of actively looking for other ways to play this market. But basically, you're already seeing some players in the market who just need somewhere to hedge. They will probably try and do that to the best of their ability um, in, in Shanghai. But um, really beyond that, the... The, the the options are rather limited but um so there's a certain element to which inertia kind of helps the lme and means that not many people will go elsewhere but that that, that certainly really only goes so far because there'll be uh, people as i said people are kind of already hopping mad about the situation and now they will be hopping slightly higher and people are saying it's an open invitation for other exchanges to look into getting into this market more that's not very very easy to do but it's um it's it's at least a, a possibility uh, and i would say after this morning's mess it's a it's, it's a really quite strong possibility just on that point because i thought the the interesting contrast was that in shanghai you have price caps right and in lme they don't so that that seems to be well, that's the thing. They, they haven't. They certainly haven't in the past. But like um, these, right. are, they're kind of bringing in now. But that faces a lot of resistance. And, and people and the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. There's there's the whole thing with the LME, and actually, it's the very kind of members that last week's kind of bailout was intended to protect. A lot of them really like the market because it's kind of quirky and it has their own kind of bespoke contracts, and you're allowed to kind of do what you want, and there aren't price limits. 
And as a result of what's happening, they've just had to bring in these kind of um, Shanghai style uh, protections. And uh, the point is, no one re that no one really likes that. Everyone probably understands the need for it, but they just don't like it. All of which adds up to a bit of a, a bit of a problem for them. Well, this is this is really fascinating. It's, it's a it's a complex and fast moving situation, and I never thought we'd really be in a situation while the while the the, the Russian invasion of of Ukraine is going on that uh, uh, the thing that would be most attracting our attention would be the nickel market. But that's one of the many ways in which this unexpected the unexpected side effects of, of, of this story. So thank you both very much for uh, uh, Yawan and George for, for, for taking the time to explain that to us. And uh, uh, I'm, you know, we may talk more about nickel in the future. Let's hope so. Thanks for having us. Pierre Briançon, welcome to the Views Room. Hello. Great to have you on. Pierre, you've just recently returned to Breaking Views as a columnist after a bit of an absence and obviously jumped straight back into to, to the stories that you're interested in um, and that you have some you have deep knowledge of. So what better combination is than writing about French companies in Russia? Pierre obviously was a, a bureau chief for French newspapers in, in Moscow around the time of Perestroika, so um, has a deep knowledge and interest in that country. But we've seen this sort of stream of, of Western companies pulling out of Russia, you know, BP and Shell saying they're going to sell their operations, and, you know, McDonald's closing its restaurant, Nike saying they're no longer selling. But you've been looking at two companies, Total and Renault, that, that are still there and have a slightly more tricky situation. So let's let's take them one at a time. Start with Total. Why are they still there? And do you think that's sustainable? Well, whether or not it's sustainable depends, of course, on the situation in Russia and Ukraine, what happens. But what is striking about Total is that it is a holdout, if you want, among the big oil companies that have interests in Russia. Interest in this case, in the case of oil companies, meaning partnerships and stakes in Russian oil companies in order to basically bring Western technology to help Russia develop new fields that are pretty hard to to explore the, and operate in regions like the Arctic, you know, fields that are offshore fields that are again uh, there's a lot of oil, but it's kind of hard to explore, and the Russian industry cannot exactly do that. So they have big interest in the case of BP in Rosneft, the Russian state-owned oil company, and in the case of Total in a company called Novatech, which is uh, exploring uh, oil in the Arctic. BP decided very quickly, I think the day after Russia invaded, to get out of Russia, sell its stake in Rosneft 20, 20 odd percent. Whereas Total has not said anything, which people interpret, rightly so in my opinion, as a desire to stick around and until better days and see what happens, etc. So our take was that maybe it would time it was time for Total to get out because their long-time association with Russia uh, is beginning to hurt both politically and in terms of public opinion, and it's hard to really see how they could not book a big loss in the region, basically. So it's now time for them to go, even though Russia accounts for about 20. 20 to 24% of their uh, current reserves. That's 
why yeah. probably they want to stick around. Well, and you, yeah, you can definitely see that. You, I mean, your view was was very specifically uh, the person who should tell them to pull out is French President Emmanuel Macron, because he's obviously taking a, an aggressive stance towards Russia and condemning the Russia, the war and so forth. And it's sort of embarrassing, particularly for a French president, where we, we expect French presidents to have a fair amount of sway over what French companies do. Slightly embarrassing to have this French company still be still be sort of keeping half a leg in Russia. Yes, obviously Total is a big oil company. It's the only French uh, um, oil major, and so it has carried some weight in France, as you can imagine. But Macron has uh, has been very very hawkish in uh, in the European response to Russia, and the, the Russian government, is, uh, the the French government is really remember you remember the, the the French finance minister calling saying the sanctions' aim was to basically ruin the Russian economy, uh, destroy it. And so, yeah, it's a bit of a paradox. And considering the, the way the French state traditionally knows how to pressure companies to do pretty much what wishes them to do, it's bizarre that Total is still, is still sticking to its guns and, and, and staying there, or at least not saying what it intends to do with its around 20% stake in, in its Russian partners. Yeah. Making the story the case worse, so to speak, is that it, as, of course, all Western oil companies in Russia, it has bedded with with very unsavory characters in the form of two oligarchs that control not only Novatec but also pretty much the whole Yamal province in the Arctic, which is the, 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 the rich uh, Russian province. So both politically and one of the oligarchs is a very close ally to Putin, and so. You, you really have that situation where Total will, risks both the reputational damage and the loss because it's hard to see how in the current situation they can make anything at, uh, out of their stake. BP just cut, basically took its losses and said, okay, it's now time to go. It, it leaves intact the question, I mean, it's a comfortable, you know, columnist position, so to speak, to say they should leave. But of course, there's a question of whom they should sell the stake to. And is it a Chinese oil company? Uh, is it some 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 Russian another Russian oligarch that, that would buy the assets on the cheap? So it's not an easy situation to get out. I mean, it's, it's it, but still, I think it would be the wise thing to do. Yeah. And, uh, well, and I've seen now. So to, to to add to things, since since your story appeared, I guess we've seen an activist investor kind of take a position and say, you know, try and say Total should sell, and then. And then just recently, uh, as actually was about to record this podcast, I saw there's a story saying the Church of England has also publicly declared that uh, they, the Total should pull out or they will sell their shares. So I guess we'll find out. Maybe we won't find out whether Emmanuel Macron is is more powerful than the uh, the Church of England or who has more clout with Total. But let's talk about another company, which you also wrote a piece about, Renault. Again, we've seen a lot of car makers you know, cancelling exports to Russia and so forth. But but Renault is is in a more complicated situation because they're they have a big market share in 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 Russia and they're on the ground. They make cars there, isn't that right? Yes, I mean the the case of companies like Renault are on the ground, are really local players, which is not the case of oil companies. Oil companies just come explore the oil. They have a few dozens, a few even a few hundreds employees locally, if you want. A company like Renault, it's the biggest car maker in Russia. It's the biggest car seller in Russia, 30% of the market. And they employ 35 to 40,000 people there. 
mostly Russian. So if you are LVMH and you sell Vuitton bags, you just close your three, four shops in Moscow and St. Petersburg and just get out. If you're Renault, I mean, what, what do you do? Uh, and first problem there. Second problem, the, the Russian government is threatening to take over those companies that even hint at leaving Russia, expropriate them. And so Renault is caught between a rock and a hard place. If they leave, they run the risk of, well, of course, they have to take a loss. The company they control in Russia, Avtovaz, who makes, that makes the, the Ladas a hugely popular car in Russia. And for a long time under the Soviet Union, the only actual car that the Russians could, could, could buy, or actually couldn't buy, but that, that was supposedly made for the market. So if they leave, take a loss, about 3 billion, currently 3 billion euros in their book. If they stay, they probably have to book the loss in any case, but they don't know whether they're going to be able to repatriate the money, probably not for months. And they're associated with, not only with the Putin regime, but with a very specific company, which is the, at the heart of the Russian military industrial complex, because that's the company that holds a th uh, 30% stake in the car maker Renault controls. And so they will be accused, of course, of even enriching the Soviet military, if you, if you really want to take the extreme case, and being in bed with another unsavory character. And so in the case of Renault, it's very hard for them to just you know, give back the key and, and leave. You could make the case maybe for another company, you know, actually a bank, Société Générale, which employs 12,000 Russian employees in, through its subsidiary Rosbank. And so I think, I think it's really hard to tell what these companies should do. Well, um, but, but I mean, I guess that part of the thinking, um, and we've seen that a little bit with Total, and I guess we'll probably see it with Renault and, and, and Société Générale as well, is that you know, they also have to think about investors in the West who, you know, feel that you know they don't want to be invested in a in a company that is that is sort of continuing to operate in russia or continuing to make money in russia and so forth so so there's also i mean i think you the pc road said renault's share price had fallen 40 percent which was four billion euros which is more actually than the value of of, of writing that car car uh, investment down to zero so so there's also a sense of like a reputational damage more broadly for some of these companies outside russia from them continuing to be there yes and probably if, if in, in terms of reputation, people who might in the West might probably think that it's even worse being a bank in Russia contributing, if indirectly, because Subgen has a, has a retail bank, but in financing the Russian economy or keeping the Russian economy uh, uh, running and, and, and alive instead of an industrial company that employs, you know, workers, which uh, you have to if you have a sense of responsibility, you, you probably need to protect. But yes, no, you're right. It's more and more you're going to see activist investors uh, or, or people who tend to, uh, you mentioned the Church of England. But yes, it is a, it is a dilemma and, and it is a hard dilemma. It's not, if it was only finance, I think both Sokgen and Renault can afford just, again, taking the losses, booking the losses and then they will be faced within Russia 
with a backlash that is not only will not, could not only come from the government, but from people who say, okay, you've abandoned us. You've left us in a, in a country with a deep, in a deep economic crisis, and you've basically, you know, yeah. deserted your responsibilities towards us. Yeah, def definitely a difficult dilemma, and the one that many companies face, but uh, but does seem to be particularly pressing for these French companies. Well, Pierre, thank you very much for uh, for coming to talk about that, and you know, I guess we will we will watch with interest to see what Total and Renault decide to do. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslik in London and Sharon Lamb in Toronto. Subscribe to Viewsroom and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.